The Matrix was released in 1999, and suffice to say, it changed the game forever. The way movies were made and filmed was vastly influenced, and for the first time in a long time, the idea of whether we live in a simulation didn't seem like a joke. It seemed almost real. This, however, isn't a story about The Matrix. This is a story about a movie that came out after The Matrix. A movie called The Replacements. Hello my freaky darlings and welcome back to another episode of ABR. It's so very good to have a lot of you join us once again. And this time, well, this is an episode that I did not plan on doing for a while. Again. I have a list, a set plan for where I want to go with this podcast and the shows, movies, animes that I want to cover, but man, it's hard to stick to it at times. And so, instead of doing our first deep dive into an anime that's very near and dear to my heart, we're going to talk about another movie that's also very nostalgic. I know that we all have those movies that we can revisit over and over again. Maybe it's a movie we actually bought on DVD or Blu-ray, or we bought a digital copy online from Google or Amazon or something, or maybe it plays on the TV from time to time, and when you get a chance, you sit down and you watch it. And maybe that's always the case. In my family, there's lots of those movies. On any random Saturday or Sunday, I can be walking about the house when suddenly, the mummy's on TV, and well, now I gotta sit down and watch it, even though I've seen it a million times. I still enjoy it the same way, and I still react to it the same way every time I watch it. You gotta have movies like that. Another one of those movies that had that effect on me for the longest time was The Matrix. But like I said at the beginning, this ain't a story about The Matrix. It's a story of a movie that came out after The Matrix, and it was called The Replacements. While it's entirely possible that some of you share the same love that I have for this movie, the reality is that this movie came and went for most of you, and I think that the reason for this is because a lot of people dislike Keanu Reeves. And that's okay. He's no Gary Oldman, or Christoph Waltz, and yeah, it's true. But to go so far as to say that the man is a bad actor, uh, I don't know, I think that's a bit too far. We've all been cursed with bad actors in our time. The name Sam Worthington comes to mind, or Brie Larson. <laughs> I'm kidding about Brie Larson. She's, she's not a bad actor by any means, but you know what I mean. Instead, I like to think that Keanu Reeves has limited range. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, Oh, if he has limited range, that makes him a bad actor. And I just disagree with that, good sir or madam. Take a tool, any tool, a hammer, a screwdriver, a wrench. No one complains that they can only do one job, because that's not the case. They were made to handle one particular type of job, and they do it well. And maybe that's not the best analogy when it comes to people, because people aren't tools, but some of them are. The point I'm poorly trying to make here is that, in the right role, with the proper expectations, Keanu Reeves is a great actor. And I like to think that's the case of any actor. Well, there's some exceptions. I can try to argue the point for hours. But I do believe that Keanu Reeves, in the right movie, excels at his craft. Maybe he shouldn't do accents, though, because the role he had in Dracula, yeah, that was awful. And we all know that it was awful. Having said that, let me pose a question to you all. 
Do you guys have a favorite sports movie? Like The Sandlot, Space Jam, Airbud? I saw The Sandlot as an adult, so the attachment that a lot of people have towards that movie is kind of lost on me. Don't get me wrong, it's a great movie with wonderful characters and a heartwarming coming-of-age story about a boy that makes friends and has a grand adventure one fateful summer. It hits a lot of those familiar classic story beats that we're all used to, and it does it well. It's not considered a classic for a reason. The same can't exactly be said for Space Jam, which combines some of the greatest animated characters to ever grace the screen with the greatest basketball player of all time. Still is the greatest, LeBron fanboys come at me, or don't. I love baseball, my interest in basketball is passing at best, but I enjoy great stories, and that movie had a great story. Space Jam doesn't scratch that wonderful itch that The Sandlot does, but it's a great sports movie just the same, and I should review those movies on our podcast someday. Someday, I promise you. I'll add them to the list. Here we go. Boom. Done. They're on the list now. The list that I refuse to follow. When I was thinking about this episode, once I had decided that this would be the next episode, because I had a few ideas, and that's when I get indecisive and nothing gets written, but when I was thinking about this, the movie Airbud came to mind. And for the life of me, I can't seem to remember what Airbud was about. I know there was a kid involved and the dog could play basketball. And do they win the last game in the movie? I want to say no. It's not that kind of movie. To be fair, they do win the last game in the sequel where the dog plays American football. I say American football because most people think of soccer. So let's just be clear on that. Football and soccer are two different things, even though in the rest of the world, they say football for everything. Did his dad die in the movie? I remember being really sad when I was watching that movie as a kid. My old man bought the VHS tape and we watched that movie a bunch growing up. But I can't really remember the plot. That's a shame. In any case, even if you don't like the sport that's showcasing these movies, they still tell compelling stories that draw you in and you get invested. You want to see the big home run, the touchdown, the game-winning basket. And again, that's the sign of a good movie. When you can overcome obstacles like this, because a lot of times, it's not so much about the sport, it's the players involved. And that's what I try to explain to my friends that tell me that baseball is boring. Again, let's not open that can of worms, because we could be here all night talking about it. Instead, let's just actually talk about the movie we're covering in this episode. If you've forgotten, because it's been a while, it's a movie called The Replacements, starring Keanu Reeves, a year after he played the role he's most famous for, The Matrix. Oh yeah, also spoilers, because I always forget. A fictional sports league is going on a strike, and to manage the end of the season, a team called the Washington Sentinels is going to hire a group of ex-players and other personnel to finish the season and hopefully get to the playoffs. As the strike begins... We see the owner of the team, Edward O'Neill, played by Jack Warden, who was a great actor in his day, go out and hire a Tom Laundrie-type coach by the name of Jimmy Ginty. Tom Laundrie? Tom Landry? I don't know. You say it somewhere like that. In any case, this was Jack Warden's last film. And while it wasn't a huge blockbuster hit, I like to think that this was the last great movie to do. I mostly remember Jack Warden for the two roles he had in his younger days. He was the grandpa in Problem Child, a movie from the early 90s that they could absolutely not do today if they wanted to. Hilarious freaking film, at least I thought it was growing up. 
I may have to watch it again and see if that was truly the case. Oh, the other role I remember him in, he was way younger. He was actually in an episode of The Twilight Zone, the original series from the 60s. In that episode, he's a convict in the future that gets sent to live on an asteroid as a form of solitary confinement. He gets sent a gift that changes his time there. I won't spoil the rest of it for you. Go watch it for yourself. All those episodes are on Netflix. The name is, uh, let me look it up. It's called The Lonely, Season 1. Jimmy McGinty, played by the always impressive Gene Hackman, insists that he assembled the team however he deems fit. But that's not where this story starts. It's just the basics for the plot. Instead, our main character is Shane Falco, played by Keanu Reeves, and in the opening credit sequence, we see that he lives on the harbor among large yaks. Yaks. I'm gonna leave that in. I meant to say among large yachts. And his job is to clean them. He gets underwater and using a scraping tool, he removes the barnacles from their holes. And we see that while he's doing that, he sees a trophy ball with his name. He takes off his breathing apparatus and he gets into position. He snaps the ball, throws it for a touchdown. At least, he celebrates like it's a touchdown. And it's a very interesting place to see Shane for the first time. It's our first impression of Shane. And again, it's super interesting. And let's talk about that later. Back to Jimmy McGinty. After meeting with the other coaches, he pulls out a yellow legal pad piece of paper with the names of individuals that he's kept an eye on over the years. Players who were pro or were gonna be pro but never had the chance. We get a really nice montage. We see the introduction of Daniel Bateman, ex-soldier, ex-football player, total psycho. Danny Bateman is played by John Favreau. Yeah, the Mandalorian dude, the Iron Man dude, the guy who revitalized Robert Downey Jr.'s career. The dude responsible for saving Star Wars, that John Favreau. And it's hilarious to see. Clifford Franklin is played by Orlando Jones, who by this point he'd had a really interesting career. I think he's still acting. He's just older. You might remember him from like Evolution or Drumline. Again, he's had a great career and he's still acting. Andre and Jamal Jackson are the twins. And while we've seen these guys in other movies, they don't have the star power that some of these other characters have. Nigel Gruff, it took me a while to recognize who this was, but he's the dude from the Amazing Spider-Man movies with Andrew Garfield. He's the bad guy in the first film. I have to look up his name because I wasn't going to remember. His name is Riz Ifans. I think I'm saying that right. Anyway, finally, after that, we see Jimmy meet Shane. And all the conversations they have are great. They talk about everyday life. And right from the get-go, you can see how much Jimmy McGinty cares about Shane. They talk about his disaster Sugar Bowl game and how he fell apart after. Jimmy reminds Shane that he's still young and that if he wants to, he can take a chance and get another shot at playing football. Shane doesn't want to be remembered at all, and he's content with living a quiet life, making do with the money he wins off his business. Jimmy smiles at him and tells him, again, take a chance, that the hardest thing to do is to get back on the horse after you've been kicked in the teeth. He leaves Shane's house, but tells him again, think it over. You could be a part of something special. 
The players show up and they get mobbed by the protesters who don't want the season to go on. We see some of the other players that are going to be prominent in the story. The sumo wrestler, the ex-player that was in prison. We also get to see Nigel, who's quiety. We get the usual training montage. And after some interactions, we cut away to Shane, who's sitting in the parking lot of the stadium, just waiting. I love this scene. Let's talk about this scene later on. When he finally gets out of the vehicle to make his way inside, he's confronted by the striking players led by quarterback Eddie Martel, and they flip his truck over to the side, because I guess that's how you harass people, by destroying their property and hoping said people won't report you to the police. Shane just walks away from it all, and then we see him coming in, in gear, ready to play. When asked if he still has an arm, we see Shane throw a pass to Clifford, and it's a legitimate scene. Keanu Reeves really did make that throw, and it's definitely edited to be an impressive shot. I want to believe that it was an impressive shot, knowing how skilled Keanu Reeves is in other crafts, especially after training for the movie John Wick, I can totally believe that it was him throwing a football with skill. It's after this shot that we see Shane meet more of his fellow teammates, including one Nigel, who became one of my favorite characters, and for good reason, more on him later. There's a lot of comedy for a sports movie, including the cheerleader tryout scene, which always makes me laugh. It's also how we're introduced to Annabelle, the head cheerleader, who has a bigger role later on in the film. The players have lunch, they fraternize, and these sequences do a lot to get you invested. That's the key to a great sports movie. Well, to any movie, really. But it's especially important when it comes to a sports film. Most movies you can watch even if you're not particularly invested in the characters on screen. It may be that there's something else that has caught your attention, an action sequence, a subplot, something that's not the main characters. But that's not the case with a sports movie. You have to care about the players, the team, the circumstances. This builds expectation. It puts you on your toes when the games are played because you want this collection of people to succeed to win, and to experience the joy of victory. If you don't care about the sport, the game, or the team, then there's not much substance to the rest of the movie, is there? Back on point. When the day's practices are over, Shane returns to his truck, the one that's flipped over on the side, and it's there that he meets with Annabelle, the two talk. She's a football fan, she also drives very fast, somewhat recklessly. At first I thought this was like a dig at Annabelle because you know lady drivers and such. But it's more about the fact that she's so focused on the conversation that she's driving almost on autopilot. Which looks like fun unless you're in the car. They get to their destination and we get some good character development on Shane's end. The night before the first game, Shane's nervous. Again, we see Jimmy talk to Shane. He tells him to lead the team and that it's okay to be nervous. This is where Shane asks Jimmy the most important of questions. The one he's probably been asking himself all this time. The one question that truly matters at the end of the day. Why me? Jimmy gives him an answer. An answer that I want to properly convey with you guys when the time comes. The first game starts and hilarity on the field ensues. But we see Shane take action. Despite the fact that they do come together as a team, they still end up losing the first game. No thanks to Shane. This is also something else I'd rather discuss in the character development section of the episode, so let's just wait. 
lots of good tidbits that we're going to talk about. The striking players show up to tease the team, but end up getting wrecked in a good old bar brawl. Of course, it's the team that gets sent to jail for the night, not the rich players who started the ruckus in the first place. We see a good number of them in jail, and we get some more good character development for all of them. I keep saying this over and over again, because the director understands that the audience has to care for these characters, and they do an overall good job of it. We get a visit from Annabelle, this time she goes to Falco's house, the houseboat, and the chemistry that they had continues to grow. The seeds of a romantic relationship are planted very well for a subplot in a sports movie. Their budding relationship is believable, and it plays a huge role in Shane's confidence. He arrives at the stadium again, and the striking players flip his truck. Again. Except this time, his fellow teammates show up, and having bonded, feel responsible in helping Shane out with his problem, which they do in the funniest of ways. I won't spoil the scene for you, it's great though. At the team meeting, Jimmy McGinty tells the team he saw them play their hardest in an effort to win the game. And while the lack of leadership issue has been resolved, the team still has to find trust in one another. They have to gel. They have to grow that chemistry that will help them win. Jimmy asks the team what they're afraid of. And after a funny sequence involving spiders, bees, and other creepy crawlies, Shane tells the team he's afraid of quicksand. And it's a very powerful scene because of what it entails. The rest of them begin to share what they fear, and the team resolves themselves to conquer their fears and win the next game. We see the second game, mid-game, and the Sentinels are losing. Our cheerleaders come to the rescue in a very unique way, and now the game is close. It's a 65-yard field goal attempt, and Nigel says he can do it. His attempt is good, and they win the game. It's now Shane who decides to go see Annabelle at her regular 9-to-5 job as the owner of one of the local bars in the area. They share stories, and we see Shane go for it, and not. The transition from kiss to game is good, it's unique. And now, fully immersed in that third game, we see the Sentinels are again playing from behind. Shane throws a few passes at Franklin, but he can't seem to complete them. In other words, Franklin can't catch the ball. After a funny sequence involving something that looks like glue and hair gel, we see Franklin come to the rescue when, in the heat of the moment, with the game on the line, Shane makes a bad pass that would have cost the Sentinels the game had Franklin not caught the ball in between two defenders. It's an impressive catch, and his celebration is hilarious. Yes, I say that word. Hilarious. I don't care. After the game, Jimmy and O'Neill talk and we find out that Martell, the quarterback, has crossed the picket line. And since there's no need for another quarterback, Shane is out. Jimmy fights the decision but loses and is forced to deliver the news to Shane, who's on the field the night before the last game, practicing. When Shane remarks that the team will be playing with the best quarterback on the team, Jimmy rebuffs him and tells him that's not the case. Shane runs into Martell at the locker room and the two talk in a scene I have to expand further in the next section of the episode because I always found it weird. Anywho, Shane delivers the news to his teammates who are out celebrating the big win and they drink to his name. The last game begins and the team is not happy to have to play with Martell. Martell doesn't want to be coached by McGinty 
and they start out poorly with Shane watching the whole thing from his houseboat. Halftime comes up, and in an interview, Jimmy McGinty says the team will need heart in order to win. We're now in the locker room, and the tension has now come to a head. The rest of the replacement players do not want to play with Martell, whose arrogance is palpable. When he exclaims that nobody can win with these losers, Shane shows up and begs to differ, and the whole team revolts. Shane puts on his uniform and runs out on the field, and the crowd goes wild. He runs up to Annabelle and apologizes for standing her up. Did I not mention he did that? Oh yeah, I haven't said that yet. Okay, but I will. And after he kisses her, he reunites with the rest of the team who's celebrating, despite the fact that they are losing. McGinty tells them that there is no tomorrow for them, because the strike will be over by then. So play this game like it's the last game they'll ever play. And they do so. They start to claw back, and a subplot that's been developing the whole time with Nigel comes to a head. I want to talk about it in detail when I get there, so just wait for that. Shane wants the ball. And in a great pass, he completes a touchdown that lets them win the game. The players celebrate, and we get one of the best voiceovers I've ever heard in a movie. There was no parade for them. No endorsement deals. Just a logger to clean out. But the experience changes them all forever. And the movie ends. The character development in the sports movie is critical to the success of that movie. Like I've said, if you don't care about the collection of people that make up the team, then it doesn't matter whether they win or lose. And if that's the case, why are you watching the movie to start with? The Replacements does a great job to highlight certain personalities and show us their journey as the next four games change their lives for the better. While it's true that only a few players get to shine because it's a two-hour movie and there's 22 players on the offensive and defensive side, the players that shine carry the movie and make it an enjoyable experience whether you're a fan of football or not. I'll only cover a few to highlight the best moments and themes of the movie, but let's start with Shane Falco. Shane Falco is the star of the movie and the protagonist of our story. I always say that the first place where you see our protagonist is important as it gives us a glimpse into the character's current state and where they're going from there. We see Falco at his job, just a regular 9 to 5, except he does it underwater clearing barnacles from rich people's yachts. Hey, I said it right this time. He's not exactly living the high life that most talented athletes live. If anything, he lives a life of quiet desperation. He seems to be perfectly content with his days, though he dreams of stepping on a football field again and having success. And we come to see why that is pretty quickly. In his heyday, he was a promising football player that developed a case of the yips. In other words, he fell apart whenever the game was on the line. The confidence, the bravado we see him portray at the start of the movie when he's trying to throw that pass in the water, is not how he behaves in real life. We get the notion it's what he wants to be, because as we learn later on, it's not what he ended up becoming, and the big win, that moment of absolute euphoria that every player dreams of achieving, that didn't happen for him, and it's his doing. We hear a good number of characters talk about his disastrous showing at the Sugar Bowl, and I wonder if that's a real event, or if it's something like the Rose Bowl. Let's see. Uh, oh, yeah, it's very real. And it was this game that caused him to hang up his cleats 
and disappear into obscurity. When Shane and Jimmy McGinty talk for the first time, Shane knows who he is and asks him to get to the point. When McGinty offers him the chance to play a significant game of football again, Shane immediately rebuffs him, saying he wants no part of that life anymore, that he doesn't want to be remembered at all. McGinty laughs and tells him that he's still young and to take a chance. Who knows? Could be a part of something special. And it's this moment that leaves Shane thinking. He finds himself the next day at his truck, still thinking it over. Do I go inside and see what this opportunity has to offer? Or do I go back home and keep my business going? It's not an easy choice to make. But it's at this point that Shane's life of desperation ends. And he decides to go for it. And little by little, he changes. We see him get bullied by the striking players and he doesn't fight back, doesn't show anger. He keeps his cool in a very hostile situation. And that's of note. I wonder how many of us could do that if we found ourselves in that situation. He doesn't immediately take the lead when it comes to dealing with Annabelle. But again, we can chalk that up to almost living like a hermit, cut off from anyone who knows who he was. And while Annabelle reminds him of his past struggles, she also becomes a great supporting character and helps him get out of his shell. Their friendship and eventual relationship is grown throughout the movie and it feels very natural. It's essential to the progress of the plot. It's not perfect, and I'll get to that in a second, but it's very well done. The night before the big game, we see Shane out in the field and he's just watching the game. This is one of my favorite scenes in the entire film and I'll tell you why right now. When McGinty and Shane talk, Shane asks him the single most important question he asked for him. Remember? Why me? And the answer that Jimmy McGinty gives to Shane is profound. And it stuck with me years on end and still does. Gene Hackman plays his role brilliant. And he really shines in this scene. When he tells him, I look at you and I see two men. The man you are now. And the man you ought to be. Someday, those two will meet. Should make for a hell of a football player. And I wonder if that's how we all see ourselves. Are we the best versions of ourselves? Or are we just waiting to meet the man and woman we ought to be? I don't have an answer to that. Because I'm still trying to figure it out myself. Anyway, that's such a great scene. And it has no business being in a silly sports movie like this one. Shane believes it though, and we see him take charge in the first game. They do get off to a rocky start, but they come close to winning. If anything, they lose the game because Shane lives up to his reputation. With the game on the line, he changes the play, decides to run, doesn't trust McGinty, and they lose. I put the game in your hands. You got scared. He tells Shane as Shane makes an excuse, telling him he read Blitz. I love their back and forth because McGinty replies, winners always want the ball when the game is on the line. Almost as if to say, you can't win if you don't play. You can't win if you don't have the confidence in yourself to win. And yeah, I know it sounds very cliche, very sports movie-like, but cliches are cliches for a reason. And the belief in your own abilities really is the difference, sometimes, in whether you can succeed or fail. He spends some more time with Annabelle and the two grow close. 
when he goes back to practice having bonded with his teammates after the bar brawl and their little dance number, a shame seems different. At the team meeting, he tells them his fear of quicksand and it changes them all. It's this fear that he's faced on multiple occasions and lost to. It's this fear that destroyed his playing career and changed his life forever. It's this fear that he has to face again. And having shared it with the rest of his teammates, he is now resolved to defeat it. Great scene, solid acting by Keanu Reeves, no matter what the naysayers say. It's after they win their second game that we see Keanu go after Annabelle, and he goes after it, and why not? Their bar scene is a great little addition. It humanizes the characters. It shows us that he doesn't just want to win football games, he wants to live. And like I said, a solid scene that goes a long way for the both of them. His confidence in himself begins to shake when, as they're playing the third game, he's making passes at Franklin, and he can't seem to catch the ball. He makes a bad pass that could have been the game, but is bailed out by none other than Clifford Franklin, and he knows it. He tells McGinty as such, but is still happy they won their third game. It's because of this that he begins to work hard to make sure that if the next game is on the line as well, he can clear his head and make the play he has to make. And it's here where McGinty tells him he's being replaced by Martell. And his world just comes crashing down, but stoic as ever, he accepts it and tells McGinty his team will be playing with the best. But McGinty rebuffs him. Martell is not the best. And he has to come to accept that. But he's there just yet. It gets worse when he goes to clean up his locker room and he runs into Martell. And the conversation they have is weird. And this is my only complaint about this movie is that Martell tells Shane he's not good enough for her. And he believes it. Like, what's that all about? Why does he care what Martell thinks? Ultimately, the only conclusion I reach is that with his second chance at redemption gone, he just wanted to retreat. To return to his world of obscurity, and she was just a part of that, and that's why he stood her up. Was he planning to just end the relationship and ghost her after? In any case, I'm glad that it doesn't happen, and instead he finally comes to terms with who he is and what he wants to be. When he returns to the team and accepts what his life became and what it can be now, his journey is complete. It's the reason why he's so focused why he's making his shots, why he takes the ball, fakes that play, and runs it for a touchdown. And it would have been cliche had it been the final touchdown. It wasn't, but he pulled it off. It was the game, and he pulled it off. The experience really did change him, and although we don't get to see the effects, I like to think it made him a better man, and maybe that's what we have to do. Take chances, make mistakes, and get messy? Uh. So does that mean Miss Frizzle was right all along? Shane's journey is well thought out and fully realized and is an example of good character development in a sports movie. Is it groundbreaking? No, not really. But it's nice all the same. Now let's talk about Jimmy McGinty for a bit. Not much is known about the old, formerly retired coach that went on to put together this team of has-beens and never-wears. But I wanted to talk about him because of what his presence made for this movie. One of the better known stories about this movie as a whole 
is the fact that when Keanu Reeves was approached to play the role of Shane Falco, he was also told that ideally they wanted to cast Gene Hackman as Jimmy McGinty, but the production did not have enough money for both Reeves and Hackman. After he was told this, Keanu Reeves took a pay cut to make sure Gene Hackman was cast, as he felt the movie would be better with him in it. At least that's how I remember this story. It's a well-known story, and the way Hackman played his role was definitely one of the highlights of the movie. Jimmy McGinty was a famous coach who had a disagreement with one of his players and was let go as a result of that. Out of the game for years now, but with an inkling of his own to return to the sport he clearly loves so much, he jumps at the chance to get to manage a team again, even if he pretends not to at the beginning. I like how, despite the fact that the other coaches had a plan to finish the season, he pulls out a paper with names, as if to say, I know exactly who I want to play, the team I want to lead. It's a great little detail that shows us he's not only a great coach, he's also a fan of the game. Because every fan does that. We all keep track of great players in our respective leagues, who they play for, what their health is like. As fans, we live for the possibility that maybe one day those players will end up on our favorite team. The odds are long, and sometimes it never happens, but we still do it because we can't help it. When Jimmy is recruited by the owner of the Washington Sentinels, one of his conditions for returning is that he can recruit and play anywhere he wants. And like I said, he has a list of players who all bring something unique to the game. Players who he's kept track of over the years. Perhaps if the other players would have asked why them, he might have told them the same thing he told Shane. That he saw in them greatness. A potential that time or other circumstances robbed them. And now he wants to help them realize that greatness, become the men they were supposed to be. And again, as fans, we do that. I can't tell you how many baseball players have come and gone with me thinking that they could have been amazing had they simply been given the chance or had they not gotten hurt. Again, great little detail that really makes Jimmy McGinty likable, relatable. It's a great trait for a coach in any sport to have. When Jimmy talks to Shane the night before their first game, he describes, Shane's, he describes Shane like a duck on a pond, which is a great freaking phrase that I use in daily life to this day. On the surface, everything is calm. Underneath the water, those little feet are churning a mile a minute. And who hasn't gone through that? When Shane asks him how Jimmy feels, he also tells him he's like a duck on a pond, and it makes sense. He put the team together, but he doesn't know how they're actually going to play, and that can make anyone nervous. That's why he asked Shane to be the leader, to establish that with the men, to gain their respect so they can follow him in combat. Shane doesn't necessarily pull it off in the first game, but after that night when Jimmy has to bail them out of prison, he knows that Shane's pulled it off and mentions it as such. It's Jimmy's idea to share their fears, to get the men to trust each other. They trust Shane, they'll follow Shane, and that's a great start. But now they have to bond. They have to create the kind of chemistry that exists in championship teams. And by the end of the movie, you can see how attached they've all become with one another. Again, a direct result of Jimmy coaching. After the third game, the one that Shane almost blows with his bad pass, the owner, O'Neill, decides to play Martell, and you can see that Jimmy doesn't agree with this. 
He tells him that Shane's just getting his groove back, his confidence. He doesn't tell him that Martel will screw up the team's chemistry. He doesn't tell him that the team won't play for Martel. But it's almost like he wants to. You can see how disappointed Jimmy is with this decision. And it's odd that he doesn't try to fight it. After all, one of his conditions is that he had complete control over the team with his word being final. I guess he never did get it in writing the way he wanted to. The last game starts out really bad. The team is making bad plays and the opposing team is walking all over them. Martel can't get in rhythm with anyone else and he refuses to follow Jimmy's playbook. At this point, the game is totally out of his hands. And it's almost like Martel came back just to ruin their chances at making the playoffs. It's only when Shane returns and boldly exclaims that he can win that Jimmy feels relieved. His final message to the team is simple. The opposing team has underestimated you. They are not scared of you. They should be. With the strike coming to an end, there is no tomorrow for the team. There are no games left to be played. It's this approach that gives them the itch. Let's them come back. There is no tomorrow. And it works. The team now led by the confident, focused, aggressive Shane. The man Shane should have become. They go on to win the game and live out their second chance at greatness. Jimmy, in a voiceover, says that there will be no grand celebration for them. No deals. Nothing to truly commemorate what these men have done. But greatness. That stays with a man. And that's what they will take home with them. Their lives have changed. And their future will be different. Because they were a part of something special. Jimmy McGinty didn't have a proper character arc. But his role is just as important. And Gene Hackman took the role seriously. And made it a memorable one. Even if the movie is not as memorable. The final character that I want to discuss in detail is none other than Nigel Gruff. Nigel Gruff is the kicker on the team. Originally a striker out of Cardiff, Wales. His biggest claim to fame and the reason why he's on the team is that he can kick a soccer ball the entire length of the field and score, hence his nickname being The Leg. We can tell almost right away that Nigel is a gambler. We see him celebrate a win in his pub by inviting the whole group to drinks, and he immediately runs afoul of some very shady characters that have obviously come to collect their debt. When he meets Shane, he tells Shane that he lost a lot of money on his Sugar Bowl game, and although one might think he'd be upset about it, he nonchalantly mentions it and carries on. Nigel is integral to the team, and we see that in his first play, where he manages to complete a field goal. He also has a funny encounter with Daniel Bateman. Seriously, go watch the movie. It's a great way to spend two hours on a Sunday afternoon, or whenever it is that you spend time and actually relax. It's the second game where we see Nigel shine, as he completes a 65-yard field goal attempt not an easy task, mind you. And again, he has a run-in with Bateman. We also see his small mini-arc start to develop. The fellas that he owes money to, well, they want him to start blowing kicks. Presumably, they also partake in gambling, and they want to rig the odds in their favor. This comes to a head when, in the most crucial game of the season, they show up and make it obvious he either blows the kick or loses his pub. What makes Nigel a character worth considering? Why single him out over all the other characters? He's nothing special, just a former soccer player from Wales that has problems with the mob. However, 
the reason I mentioned him over Clifford Franklin, Daniel Bateman, or Walter Cochran, some of the other football players that stand out, is that having played in a professional league before, Nigel understands what's required of him. Even though he's wiry, he makes every single field goal he attempts and has the mentality to just go for it. In the last pivotal game, he has tears in his eyes and he cries out to Shane. He's gonna lose his pub. You feel for the guy. And despite the damage he's about to sustain, at no point does it ever cross his mind to simply blow the kick. He goes through with it, knowing full well what he has to do. I think that's admirable, and it's why he stands out in my mind. Shane's problems were mostly on the field. Nigel's were mostly off the field, as his vices eventually caught up to him. We don't see the kind of soccer player he was back in Wales, but we can assume he was good enough to be a striker, to be dominant, and to fall in hard times because, again, vices, man. Shane and Nigel are interesting foils in what can happen to a player. Shane let the problems on the field derail his whole life. Nigel's problems eventually caught up to him. Had it not been for Shane's quick thinking, who knows what would have happened? Would he have blown that kick? He broke his arm when Shane took the ball away and the fake at the end. To me, it certainly looks like he was going to make that field goal, regardless of what happened to him afterwards. It's just something I wanted to mention. I mentioned a few of the other players, but now I want to highlight some of their abilities, starting with Daniel Bateman, who again, I have to say, is played by John Favreau, the same guy behind Iron Man and The Mandalorian. Danny is insane, and he plays the game like he's crazy. He steals every scene he's in, and he's just a joy to watch. Also, Fabro was built like a tank in those days. It's totally realistic to think he could have played professional football had he wanted to. Clifford Franklin, played by Orlando Jones. That's our comic relief, and he does that extremely well throughout the whole movie. He has his moments, and is a memorable character in the movie as a whole. Walter Cochran, played by Troy Winbush, he dreams of scoring a touchdown. One touchdown, as he didn't get the chance to do so when he played. He got injured. He gets his wish, scoring a vital touchdown in the last game, though, again, he gets injured. Also, I love the fact that he's portrayed by a religious man, but he was still fully participating in that bar brawl. That's hilarious. Andrin Jamal, those guys were a lot of fun, memorable characters. Again, no real larks, but still play pivotal roles in the movie. Ultimately, it's a silly sports movie with a lot of heart to it. It became one of those roles that you do and you forget for a lot of these guys. Nothing big came of it. And it only lives on in the hearts and minds of those people who like sports movies, football movies, and maybe Keanu Reeves, though most people love him for John Wick. Whenever it was playing on the TV growing up, I would always stop and watch it and enjoy it. And to me, having said it before, I'll say it again, that's the mark of a good movie. Not a great movie, but not a bad one either. I'm sure the movie has flaws, like any other movie, but it holds a special place in my heart for a lot of reasons. Nostalgia mostly, but one of the main reasons is the theme of this. If this movie has a running theme, it's the idea of second chances. For Shane, for Jimmy, for all the other characters in the movie, it's a second chance to achieve something great. To return from obscurity, to escape a life of quiet despair, and be a part of something special. Greatness stays with a man, 
That's a quote I first heard in this movie, and it's something I still believe to this day. You may end up with a lot of failures, and that's okay. If anything, that's the mark that you were bold enough to want to try. Later on in life, I heard another great quote that's very similar to this one. Don't beg for things. Do it yourself, or else you won't get anything. It's something I've remembered and forgotten many times throughout my life, and it's a constant reminder of what happens to those who want everything handed to them. And that's a lot of people in this day and age. The players take advantage of this great opportunity and come out the other side as better men, better people. Every athlete dreams of a second chance. These men lived it. And that's a great idea to make a movie on. So did I like it? Yeah, plain and simple. It's, it's a good movie. It's a hidden gem that very few people remember to this day. And like I said, it lives on in the minds of those who remember this movie and saw it at the time. If you're still not convinced, that's okay. At least you stuck around and I hope I managed to entertain you. And if not, at least I helped you kill some time or something. But if you did like it, go watch it. I'm not sure if it's on any streaming platform. Let me check. Well, hmm. You can rent it or buy it online from your favorite distributor, but it doesn't look like you can stream it on Netflix or something. Could be wrong, though. Here's a few observations that I wanted to make but didn't really have a place anywhere else to mention them. Pat Summerall and John Madden narrate the plays on the field. That's a nice touch. Anyone who grew up watching football or playing Madden games, they'll recognize those voices immediately. Again, nice touch. We get a few training montages with some interesting music. Also, the deaf guy is played by the same guy who plays Roy in The Office. And I wrote The Audience. It's The Office. Why did I write The Audience? I don't know. I just caught that. The cheerleader tryout scene is funny. There's no way anyone gets away with that today. If you saw it, you know what I'm talking about. I low-key still want to live on a houseboat, but I'm deadly afraid of water, plus I can't swim, so probably not happening. The sumo man eating the raw eggs before the game and the throw-up scene, that still gets to me. I can't be around other people throwing up because I get nauseous myself. Bateman beating the hell out of Nigel for scoring the field goal is hilarious. It always makes me laugh. Orlando Jones putting on the Commodores and getting Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive out of the jukebox is great. I've seen this movie dozens of times. That's the first time I see his reaction when he does it. He really did put on the Commodores. The song just came on like it was mislabeled or something. Also jukeboxes. I never used one. I learned the electric slide in high school partially because of this movie. Our whole class did. I think the teacher was a fan. She must have mentioned it at least once. I want some of that wild yam that Annabelle put on Falco's back. Also, someone to put wild yam on my back would be great, but not holding my breath on that one. Either Andre or Jamal being afraid of bees is hilarious. Maybe he has an allergy. I don't like bees either, but we do need them. That much I do know. The second cheerleader scene, you know the one I'm talking about with the friendly cheerleaders? I wonder if that's ever been tried in real life. I didn't get a chance to say this anywhere, but here it is. Pain heals. Chicks dig scars. Glory lasts forever. That's a great line. I love that line. Should be the tagline. The final dance to I Will Survive. That was great. That was a nice way to end the movie. The Replacements is one of those movies that had no business being as good as it was. Keanu Reeves made a few of these movies over the years in between his big box office hits. Hardball was the other one that immediately comes to mind. But this is the one that I saw as a kid that I really liked. 
if I piqued your interest, again, go watch it, laugh a little, go back to simpler times, to the days before corona, before lockdowns, before all the madness that we call our day-to-day -day lives. If you didn't, thanks for the support just the same. The folks here at ABR, well, mostly me, but someday the crew will be bigger than one. Well, we really appreciate all that you do for us. If you want more, listen to our other episodes. Take care of yourselves, my friends, and beware the wasteland.